Thanks for tuning in to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that you're blessed and encouraged to walk out the gospel as you listen to this message. Hey, good to see you. And uh, man, Easter was great this year, wasn't it? I just, I, I was thrilled with what I saw happening in the house this year. And what I want to share with you today is a follow-up with that. You know, I've found that, that Christmas and Easter both are holidays, and we, kind of when that's over, we get back to business as usual. But here's the thing. After Christmas and after Easter both, things happened that were dynamic. And I want to talk to you this morning about uh, 50 days that changed the world. Happened right after Easter. And from that point on, everything changed. It's almost the difference between Christ with you and Christ in you. How many of you know that Christ with you brings conviction? It brings you an illustration of something that's beyond you. It's otherworldly. You're amazed by it. But you can literally walk away from it and not be changed. But Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. That's God's plan. That's God's anointed uh, method of changing a life. It doesn't start from here. It starts from here. When we are born again, we now have a capacity to walk into things that we can't even hardly yet understand or, or comprehend the scope of. But God initiates in us something that is destined to change us and to make us far more than we thought we could be. And so I want to just illustrate that today. You know, the days between the resurrection of Jesus and the day of Pentecost were arguably the most transformative days in history. The incredible dynamic revealed and unleashed in those 1,200 hours is perhaps best illustrated in the lives of those who lived with him before that awful day on the hill at Golgotha. This group of people had witnessed firsthand his kindness, compassion, wisdom, and even amazing displays of his power. However, they still struggled with the inherent weaknesses that have troubled mankind since the Garden of Eden. They knew him in a fleshly way, but they were about to be introduced to him on a whole new level. All four Gospels recount the story and give various perspective and bits of information, but for time's sake, I'll try and concentrate today only on John's account in chapters 20 and 21. So if you have your scriptures open, you might want to go there. There's a scripture that I love because it basically tells us something we need to remember. In Romans 8:29, it says, He was the firstborn among many brethren. What we need to understand about that is what we see in Jesus is supposed to look a whole lot like what our future is going to be. Because what drove him and what enabled him and what gave him wisdom, what gave him power, what gave him the favor that he had with God and man was the Holy Spirit. He was filled with it without measure. And you and I are being invited in these 50 days to understand that we're not just to be spectators, that we're to be participants in that same hope of glory, that same anointing of God, that same outpouring of God's kingdom and power that Jesus was. I don't think we really get that. We have been so soaked in religion that we want to view him from afar like people at a stadium watching a performance or a ball game. 
We want to live in the shadow of glory, but we don't want to experience glory because that would change the whole deal. But God wants us to have something that's far beyond what religion has, has consoled us that we could have. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus is wanting to pour out his power. He's wanting to open the, the, the doors of revelation to you and me and cause us to be more than we could ever possibly be on our own. And that's his promise. What I love about these next few days in, in the Scripture is that Jesus, as he was rising from the dead, you would imagine that he would immediately be back in glory. He would be back in heaven. He would be back at the right hand of the Father where the angels and all would be adoring him and praising him for what he had accomplished. And he did go there for a short period of time right after he was resurrected. But he came back. And for the next 40 days, 40 days, he spent it with the disciples. He went moving among them. From time to time, he would just appear out of nowhere. He would talk to them about things that were very important to them. Hebrews in chapter 2, I think, is a phenomenal scripture. Uh, let me read it to you right quick. Verses uh, 16 through 18. These are powerful words that I want you to get in your heart today. It says this. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels or Take on the nature of angels. That translation is poor there. It should mean, indeed, he does not take on the nature of angels. But he does give aid or take on the nature of the seed of Abraham, that is, people. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people or to pay for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You know, it's pretty obvious sometimes when people, I've, I've heard people that never had children tell us how we ought to raise our kids. That doesn't wash well. I don't know about you. I don't take advice from somebody that, that's never been there or done that. You know, when we have a car problem, I call Wes Oldham. I don't know much about cars, and I'm not going to give anybody advice on how to fix one, but I know a guy that does. How powerful is it that God was not just willing to sit in heaven and tell us how we ought to live? He illustrated that with the whole Old Testament, and it never worked out. But he had to prove the point to us. And so, Jesus came, every bit God, and yet every bit man. What an amazing thought, and what an amazing concept that he would literally put on flesh, condescend to men of low estate, in the words of the Scripture. He would come... As a peasant in an occupied country, having no authority and no power in the natural because he literally was a slave in, in a culture that hated God and didn't believe in God and certainly would not tolerate him talking about God. But God put his son in that vulnerable position, full of the Holy Spirit, to show what could happen when flesh 
and heaven met. Another scripture, just a couple of chapters over, chapter 4 of Hebrews, again, same concept. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points. You say, well, he was never tempted like I was tempted. Hey, it was the same family temptation, trust me. Comes from one source and appeals to flesh, all flesh. It says, let us therefore, knowing that he was tempted just like you are, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. That's not getting what you deserve. That we may obtain mercy and find grace, that is, ability beyond our ability to help in time of need. Is there anybody in this house today that could say, I could use a little bit of both? I don't really want to reap what I have sown. Lord God, help me. You know, that's really all he's asking, is that you come to him. When we confess our sins, we simply are agreeing with him about the state of our behavior. And it says that I will then find grace to help me in my time of need. And grace enables me to be able to overcome what on the natural side I cannot overcome. That's why Jesus went through what he went through. So he could understand you. Even though he's... Omniscient knows all things. There's some things you only learn by experience. And he was willing to take upon him our, our frailties, in a sense. But that coupled with God's grace and wisdom in him allowed him to overcome them. And as the patterned son, the point is now he comes to enable you to experience that same kind of ability, that same kind of grace, that same kind of wisdom, that same kind of discernment to know when to say no. So the most spiritual thing we can say sometimes is no. My grandson came home from school. He had a teacher, and he, he, he decided she was a Karen. Anybody know what a Karen is? If your name is Karen, don't get on, off, you know, fired up here. Uh, and he she had this teacher that said, she'd walk in and the kids were doing something and she'd say, you're done. <laughs> that kind of mentality, I think sometimes is what people attribute to God because holiness and our unholiness don't meet. And when God comes to us and, and convicts us by his spirit about something in our life, he doesn't say, you're done. <laughs> he says, come into me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. There's a place in him that gets it. But there's a bigger place in him that wants to help you overcome it. I'm here today with a message for somebody. I'm here today with a message that I think is going to encompass wherever you're coming from on the spectrum your personalities, your foibles, your weaknesses, 
This faithful high priest of ours never gives up. He's got a mission to perform, and it will not be performed until the day he presents you faultless before his father. So, Father, here they are, the trophies of salvation, my kids. They once were lost, but now they're found. And we enter into the joy of our salvation permanently that day. But until that day, I have a faithful high priest that says, Father, I'm interceding for him today. I'm interceding for her today. Don't visit them on behalf of their sins. Do you think that pattern that Jesus set when his accusers had nailed him to a cross and had so horribly abused him when he looked at them and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. That's the heart of the man, Savior, Son of God that sits at the very right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for you and for me. I don't know if you feel like you need it, but I'll guarantee you I need it. I'll guarantee you ultimately that you're going to find out you need it too. And I want to show you today in these 40 days that he spent with the disciples, I want you to see how he approached the different individuals that had followed him and were dealing with issues now. The very, the very first morning that, that he was resurrected, as usual, the ladies were first. They went to the tomb with spices. They were going to anoint the body. It had been a hurried burial that day because of the Jewish law. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, which was more than likely the mother of Jesus, went to the tomb. Verse 11 of John chapter 20 says, And Mary stood outside the tomb as she wept and stooped down and looked into the tomb. Now before that, Simon Peter had been there with her, and he saw what he saw, and he was on his way. Peter was at the best impulsive. He's kind of like the guy one of my friends described one time as a, a ready-fire-aim kind of personality. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, don't confuse me with the facts. I get it, you know, and he's off and running. And so he saw that the tomb was empty, and he's off and running. Boom. He's got his own issues, see, because not too long ago, he bragged to all the disciples in the presence of Jesus that even if these guys forsake you, I will never forsake you. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, before the rooster wakes us up in the morning, you're going to deny three times that you know me. He could not believe such a thing. Three times, folks, in the, in the Middle East is a big deal. If you say it once or twice, maybe they don't take it seriously, but you say it the third time. That means you're going to live and die by that statement. I was in Saudi Arabia just, in fact, it was two weeks after we planted this church in Christmas of 93. And I had been being vetted to go to Saudi Arabia to preach to the only legal church there that was sponsored by Aramco Oil Company. And I remember when I got there, 
they took me around Dahran, which is where the, the, they were living. And um, I kept seeing on, in the weekend there in the holiday, which was Friday, I kept seeing um, the ladies, of course, they had their, their burkas on and they couldn't see anything but black. Uh, but their husbands were escorting them around town and they were dragging their husbands into one gold shop after another. Things haven't changed too much, no matter what culture you go to. <laughs> and uh, I said, what in the world's going on? Everybody's going into one store after another. They say, well, here's the thing. In our culture, the women have no rights whatsoever. None. They own nothing. The only thing they own is that which is on their person. And their husband, if he's displeased with them, can say, I divorce you, I divorce you. I divorce you, and it's settled. And they know that they won't have a chance to go back to their home and retrieve anything because they don't own anything except what is under their burqa on their arms or around their neck or on their fingers. Saying it three times made it legal. Peter had in his own mind sealed his fate. And when it happened, in fact, the way that it was, the way it all came about, Caiaphas' house sits on a hill, and, and down below that was where people were gathered that night as Jesus was being whipped. And three times in that little short period of time, standing around a fire, a unique fire, it was a fire of coals, the Bible calls it. Peter denied the Lord three times. And then he went out and wept bitterly. He thought it was all lost. He thought he was no more. And that was still on his mind as Jesus went on the cross. That was still on his mind this morning as he comes and sees that sure enough, the tomb is empty. He doesn't know what to think about it. The Scripture tells us that, that the, the, the disciples did not understand the Scripture at that point or the, or the teaching of Jesus at that point that he would literally rise from the dead. It seemed like it was all over in so many ways for Peter. So he came and saw it and he left. And, and Mary says, Mary Magdalene, the one out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons, she stayed there's a lesson in this. The surface stuff in God belies a deeper truth. And Mary stayed, and even though she'd looked into the tomb already, she went and looked in again. And what she saw was perhaps one of the most impactful images in all of Jewish religion. The Ark of the Covenant the Ark of the Covenant was a gold box in which the Spirit of God rested back in the day. It was the place where the priests came once a year to bring blood sacrifice and put it on the mercy seat. At both ends of the mercy seat on the Ark were two angels that, whose, whose wings touched nearly in the middle and and, and, and the blood was placed on that altar, and that was the place where forgiveness for the sins of the people was found over that year. And as she looked in the tomb this next time, she was greeted with an image that all religious people everywhere would have loved to see. 
because there in the natural, two angels of God were sitting at the foot and at the head of that grave slab where the blood had come to rest. And she would have known if she were a Jewish priest that that said that the lamb had been sacrificed on the altar of God and salvation had been born. She saw that. Who saw that? Who saw that depth and that beauty and that powerful expression? A little lady that had seven demons cast out of her. But those that are forgiven much learn to love much, and she had. And about that time, she turns, and she sees someone, and she thinks it's the gardener, and she says, where have you laid him? Just tell me where you've laid him, and I'll, and I'll, I'll take his body, and we'll, we'll take care of it. And that one said, Mary. She melted at his feet. Holding on to his feet, Jesus said, don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to my Father, my God, and your God. And apparently, he went from there into glory and then was received and probably coronated and then came right back because there was business to take care of. Those for whom he died were in confusion. Those that he had loved while in the flesh, now he loved even more. And he had something to bestow on them that would change their existence forever. Two men walking down the road, we find out later, was Simon and Cleophas. Cleophas was a relative of Joseph, uh, Jesus' stepfather. And they were walking down the road and they were talking and they happened to meet up with, with Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus. And he said, what are you talking about? And they began to tell him, don't you know? Or you, have you not heard? And, and they tell the story of Jesus and how he was killed in, in you know, illegal ways and so forth and so on. And, and uh, he walked with them for a while. And then it looked like he was going to keep going. And they asked him to stay with them because it was near night. And, and, and he broke bread with them. And as he was breaking the bread, they recognized who he was. And then he departed out of their presence. You know, I, I look at those two guys and I think, you know, there are a lot of people that are walking around in confusion and fear and hopelessness like these two guys. With all that's going on in our world today, our foundations are being shaken. Our politicians are literally out of their minds. Literally out of their minds. There's never been this kind of idiocy in high office. If you're a Democrat, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm just telling you, there literally is a lack of any common sense in high places right now. I feel that America is on the verge of a revival because we've stopped trusting in that which cannot be trusted. And something's happening. And I want you to know that Jesus is going to come walking by. 
And while we're talking about and bemoaning the injustice that's just fallen on our world, there's going to be someone come along and he's going to touch our lives in such a way. And as we break bread, as we break the scriptures, as we break bread and fellowship together, there's going to come a presence of God that's going to come and give peace where there's chaos, understanding where there's confusion, priority where everything is the same importance. I'm telling you, God is about to do something amazing on planet Earth. It's going to be very similar to what we see in this particular passage of Scripture. Then what is amazing to me, Jesus appears in the midst of his disciples while they're in, they're literally for the fear of the Jews, they are locked in a room and they're doing whatever they're doing and Jesus just shows up. Of all the places that the Son of God could be, of all the glory that he could be receiving from the angelic hosts and, and this pat's on the back from his father who's well pleased in him, he chooses to come to a group of people that are locked in a room somewhere for fear of the Jews, the religious ones. And he comes in. Shows them his hands and his side and brings peace to them. He brings them, he greets them with peace. There's one guy that's not in the midst, though. It's Thomas. Thomas, when he's told what happened later on, he said, literally, if I, unless I see his hands and put my hand at his side, I will not believe. That's a group of people right there that we understand we live in a, in a time in which science supposedly has all the answers. Thomas knew good and well what had happened to Jesus. And he wasn't buying it. They didn't have a background to buy it. He, he wouldn't have had any context for understanding that someone could come back from the dead. But when confronted with this, he probably thought, this is just an emotional thing with these people. They miss Jesus so much that they're telling me all this stuff. These ladies have a story from what happened at the tomb, but probably uh, with, this, with this government of the Romans, they don't want anything to be done. They want that body to disappear. They just want it to be over with. Rationally, he had every reason to believe such. He said, I'm not going to believe unless somebody is talking to me from my watch. But Jesus comes back again. This time Thomas is in the midst. And without saying hardly anything else, he says, Thomas, hey, you're there. See that? Thomas, come here. Put your hand in here. Right here. Right here where the spear went. Right here. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Thomas, you've believed because you have seen with your eyes. Blessed are they that believe and they do not see. He introduced a whole new realm of seeing called the eyes of faith. 
The eyes of faith are given their sight by the words of Scripture come to life via the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We have to be able to see with the eyes of the Spirit. We have to be able to understand that these things are tangible. They're as real as they can possibly be, and they're powerful, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What God says is empowered by all the authority of heaven and is released through us by faith. You're really quiet out there. But I'm telling you, if we ever got that through our head and let it sink down into our heart, we'd be operating on a whole new operating system. What we cannot by natural means understand the things of God, but by the Spirit of God they are revealed. When Jesus came that day full of the anointing, full of love, full of power, he spoke to a man who wouldn't believe unless he saw. He was a rationalist. But that man changed. And a few years later, in a city named Mirapol, India, this man that couldn't believe unless he saw, this rationalist who lived by the dictates of his mind had had a conversion so deep that although he was weak and unbelieving in this moment, he became a lion of the faith and he went all the way to India to preach the gospel. And in Mirapol, India, on July 3rd, 72 A.D., history tells us, Thomas gave up his life so that others might live. They stabbed him with spears and killed him for his witness of Christ. How do you take a rationalist who's cold-hearted, and I believe it when I see it, and turn him into a man that's willing to lay down his life for people he's never met so that they might hear about salvation? How do you do that? How do you get there from here? A touch from Jesus. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. But what I love about this is he met Thomas where he was. He will meet you where you are as well. He disappeared. One day, Peter, impulsive as he was, said, I'm going fishing. I like that guy. I've claimed that scripture many a times myself. <laughs> and not, not unlike some of my trips, they caught nothing all night long. In the morning, they were coming to shore to clean their nets and do, do all the work that, that's required after a night of fishing. And some guy on the shore over there says, hey, have you caught anything? And they said, no, we've fished all night, we've caught nothing. And John says, that's the Lord. And before that happened, the, the guy on the shore that has no boat, probably wouldn't appear to know much about fishing, says something that's crazy. He says, well, cast your net on the right side, and you'll catch. You'll find some. 
Well, the way they fished it wouldn't make any difference if it's on the right side or the left side. You don't do very well fishing during the day. That's why you fish at night. But somehow or other, these guys were just desperate enough. And in fact, Peter had already had an experience eerily similar to this early on. And so they cast the net. And lo and behold, it has so many fish in it, they can't even hardly pull it in. They can't pull it in. And Peter and John, John looks and says, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. And Peter, this guy that's failed, this guy that's carrying this heavy burden of failure and embarrassment, puts on an outer coat because they virtually uh, fish naked. And he, he put on an outer coat out of respect and dove into the water and swam approximately 100 yards to the shore. As he's crawling out of the water, I have a feeling that he smelled this fire that was called a fire of coals, like the one that night that he betrayed the Lord. Only two places in the Bible where a fire of coals are mentioned. The night he betrayed and the morning he caught the fish. But it probably, you know, your olfactory senses are tied to your memory. Amazing how one can trigger the other. And I believe that when he smelled that fire, something inside of him turned over. And Jesus said to him, bring some of the fish you've caught. And Peter then goes and helps drag in the net. And the next thing we know, they've counted 153 large fish. There's a principle in, in the Jewish language called gematria, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And every number has words attached to it. And guess what? 153 means I am God. I mean, confirmation. The miracle, the attitude with which I'm approaching you, and the confirmation. Then they have a little discussion. Peter, do you love me? We started this conversation a while back. Peter, do you love me? And he used the word agape, which means the God kind of love, the unselfish kind of love. And Peter, Peter says, Lord, I love you. With the word phileo, which means I have affection for you. Peter, do you love me? Agapeo, Peter says, I phileo you. I love you like a friend. And finally, Jesus asks him, do you really love me like a friend? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I do. But the interesting thing was, after each of those questions, he said something like this, 
feed my sheep. Tend to my sheep. And then finally, take them to pasture. This guy, this guy, who had blown it so many times, who thought he was all that, who thought he was better than other Christians or other followers, had blown it so publicly and so awfully that he thought he was done. And Jesus authorized him and called him to take over for him. And Peter, so full of himself, in 64 AD, along the Appian Way to Rome during Nero's persecution of the church, was being crucified for his testimony. He begged his crucifixion team not to put him on the cross like Jesus was. And he begged them until they at least turned him upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to die as Jesus had died. What a transformation God has for all those who will come to him in a contrite heart and a broken spirit. When Jesus ascended, he told them, listen, I authorize you to go therefore and preach to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always until the end of the age. He said, but you wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. It's one thing to know what to do. It's another thing altogether to have the power to do it. I'm telling you folks, he's the same yesterday today and forever. And we may have an understanding of what to do, but we better be crying out to God for the power in which to do it. Because what's born of the flesh is flesh, and what's born of the Spirit is spirit. Would you stand with me this morning? several groups of people today that I would love to spend the time talking to and ministering to individually. There's some of you that are like Peter. You're so impulsive. Unless it knocks you down, you don't get it. You got your own program and you're trying to get God on your team and he's not buying it. We got some Thomases here and we got to have more proof than this. I'm not just believing some pie in the sky thing. And we got some Marys here that want to take one more look. And that all, all of those personalities and many thousands more make up the thing called the body of Christ. And whoever you are in this place today, and whoever you are online, whoever you are at the family center, whoever you are today, wherever you are today, 
Jesus is very interested in connecting with you on the basis of your issue. He'll open the eyes of your understanding. He'll let you see it. He'll let you know it. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here today and you're in one of those places where you say, God, I want to, but I I don't know how to. Maybe you just say, God, I don't even really want to today, but I'm willing to be willing. Maybe you're one of them that says, Lord, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. Those are all right places to be. And it's a good thing to be honest. It's a really good thing to be honest. Don't play games. You're not convincing God by the games. But wherever you are today, he's willing to come. So I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads right quick. And sometimes it's good to have a bodily action that that belies what's going on inside of us. I don't think we could live totally without that. If you're here today and you're in one of those places of confusion, one of those places of frustration, one of those places of fear, one of those places of unbelief, whatever it might be, I'm just going to ask you just to slip up your hand right quick. Just tell him, okay, that's, that's me, Lord. Yeah, yeah. People all over the room. Jesus, in your name today, I pray that you will reveal yourself. Touch them where they need to be touched. Honor their humility today, God, I pray, with your humility, your servant-heartedness, your condescending to those of us of low estate. Would you just come and move in that situation today, Lord? Would you open their eyes? Would you warm their hearts? Would you pour out your spirit on them today, I pray, in such a way that they will know it was you. It wasn't by coercion of any other matter. It was the spirit of Almighty God coming to rest upon me. Lord, that will make it authentic, and that will give them the boldness to go forward. And I pray that you will do that for them in some way this week, and they'll have a different story next week. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. God bless you guys. Have an awesome week.